But Father, we turn to you and we give you thanks for this time of year, this Christmas season that the world calls the holidays. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a witness and not in a pejorative way, not in a way that is caustic, not in a way that is argumentative, but in a way that people see the witness and desire to know what it is that we have because of the joy that is within. And Father, may we be givers during this season. May we experience Christmas the way you would have us experience it. I pray, Lord, that we can be a blessing to those who are around us. We ask also that you would bless your word as it goes forth. There is so much spiritual information that is available here in your word, and we pray that you would help us to glean some of that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when it comes to the word, you have to cultivate a desire for it. If you don't have a desire for it, it really will not enter into your being, so to speak. Uh, Have you ever read a page and found your eyes were moving, but no information was going in, and you have to go back, and you have to reread the sentence or the paragraph or the page again, you say, what did I just read? My eyes were moving, but I kind of checked out. And you have to, for the most part, especially if it's a little difficult in reading a particular section of a book or a magazine or something like that, you have to focus sometimes on what it is you're reading. And you have to do that with Scripture. You have to develop this desire. For instance, uh, when you first had a taste of coffee with no cream and sugar, what did you think? Exactly. For those of you who have smoked before, the first time you picked up a cigarette and you puffed on that thing, what did you think? I got to be crazy. Let me try that again. You know, and you would smoke it again. And and so alcohol, the same thing for those of you who have alcohol. You take and you go, "Ah, am I really doing this? You get that down and you have to acquire a taste for it. Now, we can acquire a taste for the earthly things, but when it comes to Scripture, it's like the little child who tastes a lemon for the first time. Have you seen little babies do that? They put it in their mouth and they just squint and they they, they just... They don't have a taste for it because the Bible is something that is spiritual and you have to develop a taste for it. That means you have to go to it regularly and it's like digging. Have you guys seen the programs where they, they go after these precious gems that are hidden in the mountainside and they're digging in these little caves and they pull out these gems and the guy goes, yeah, it's worth about $20,000 right there, some amethyst and it's just huge, you know? There's a mine like that up in Alpine where they pull those things out like that. You have to dig for it. You have to want to. When uh, Buzz and I go for lobster, I get this thing in me that, where are they? You know, I have to search for them. Now, with that, and when you find something, when you find, I found this one last week or the week before. How big was it, Buzz? About Yeah, it was, it was just huge. And it was in this little bitty spot at about 60 feet under the water. And I saw him and I go, you are mine. Of course, I said, I said it with the, you know, the aqualung thing in there. And, and to get to it, to make sure I wasn't going to lose it, I had this rock in front of it and I knew I could move the rock. 
So with my fins on, I got up there and I put my fins up there and I grabbed the rock and I pulled it away. And then I got my knife and the sea urchins were in the way and I moved those sea urchins out of the way and I go, now. And I went in and I got it and he was mine. He was a monster. And I thought, huh? And he was an appetizer for everybody at Thanksgiving. You know, it was really good. Well, that's the way you need to look at Scripture. You need to look at Scripture like, I'm going to find what is in this thing and I'm going to dig. And you actually have to mine it. You can't just read it and go, what did I just read? You have to stop and ask yourself questions or ask the text questions of itself. If you do that, you will be filled up. You will be satisfied. You will walk away sometimes in awe that God prepared everything for us in such a way to guide us, to let us know what was going to take place, to give us this foreshadowing even thousands of years ago when Moses was alive and the children of Israel. And so when we read the book of Exodus, it's like that. You have to dig. Now, as we dig here, I'm only going to be able to use a spoon. I won't be able to get a shovel. If I did that, I would not even get out of one chapter for a month. I would have to stay in the chapter that whole time. That means... It's up to you guys to go back and just start digging through it. And anything that I say, you can ask yourself some questions. Well, what about this and what about that? And you go back and you start digging through it. Now, I told you last week there was a genealogy that was set up. And it seems to be out of place in chapter 6. In chapter 6, beginning in about verse 13, and it goes to the end of the chapter there, we see this lineage, and we know Moses is there, and he's going to Pharaoh, and he tells Pharaoh that God said, let my people go so they can go into the wilderness and they can worship, and Pharaoh was going to have nothing to do with it. And then it just goes into this, and this is the genealogy. It's like, what? It's like a non sequitur. It doesn't flow. It's not going, it seems, to where it needs to go. Because there's a natural progression as you go in the book of Exodus and you get to chapter 6. The question would naturally arise, is this the same Moses that we heard all the stories about that came from the line of Israel? Or was it another Moses and Aaron? God anticipated that question. Because remember, this was written, could be up to 40 years after this incident took place. Who knows, 40, 45 years. It it could have been a long time, not more than 45, certainly. Because they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and Moses wrote the book of Exodus during that time. And so the question would have come up for the next generation. Was this Moses, the leader, the same one that did this? And so what Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did was put down his genealogy, and he does it in a specific way. I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 6 and verse 13, and we'll pick this up. And it is not a non sequitur. It just flows, and God did this in anticipation of somebody reading it and asking the question. Verse 13 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So that's where the question would come up. Is this the same Moses that we know? The one who's faltering, the one who's doubting, the one almost God killed, God almost killed. And is this Aaron, his brother, his older brother by about three years? We want to know. And so God inserts here, verse 14. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben were firstborn son of Israel, were 
Hanok and Palu and Hezron and Carmi, these were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jacob, Zohar, and Shal, the son of the Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to the records, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. Now, what do you notice about that? You just start going, no, wait a second. You have Reuben, you have Simeon, and you have Levi. What on earth does Reuben and Simeon have anything to do with this genealogy? And it can take you back and you're going, what is this? I, I don't get it. Well, so you have the question, right? I thought you would never ask. I'd like you to turn over to Genesis chapter 29. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, the reader of the book of Exodus would have been reading Genesis as well because Moses is the author of Genesis. And so the genealogy is recorded in Genesis. And in Genesis chapter 31, we find out that these are the sons of Leah, now, who was the other woman that was her sister? Rachel. Leah and Rachel. Now, who was the one that Jacob loved? Rachel. He didn't love Leah because it said that she had weak eyes. But by weak eyes, it is believed that they were blue eyes, that they weren't brown because anybody with blue eyes knows if you're out in the sun for too long, you are squinting and you can get cataracts if you do that for a long time. I have blue eyes. And I go out there and I go, oh, man. And my wife's going, what? I'm going, oh, it's killing me. You know, the sun coming down. So Leah, she had these children and the Lord opened her womb because she was not as loved or loved as much as Rachel. When the Lord saw in verse 31 that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him... Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. And, of course, the next son after that was Judah, from which comes Jesus Christ, the lineage. And so the reader, back over in Exodus chapter 6, when they get to verse 15 and they see the sons of Simeon, and then they see the sons of Levi, and before that, in verse 14, they see the sons of Reuben, they would immediately make the connection. They would have opened up Genesis. They would have said, wow, that... You know, I've read this somewhere before. It must be in Genesis. And as you read through the Bible, you will do that. You will be in a particular section. You'll go, I've read this somewhere before. And that should prompt you to go back and look and establish what is being said later on. This is what God tells us to do. So God is saying, this is Moses and Aaron that came from the tribe of Levi. Now, this was important because the because the Levites were going to be the ones who were going to be the priests. And so this was established not only for the reader who was inquisitive, but also for the future, those who were going to be the priests, and it would be understood from generation to generation. And from Levi, we have... 
Let's see, I'm in verse 16. These were the names of the sons of Levi according to their records. Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. Levi lived 137 years. The son of Gershom by clans were Libni and Shemai. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, Uziel, Kohath, and lived 130 years, or 33 years. The sons of Merari were Mali, Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to the records. Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Amram lived 137 years. So we see the parents of Moses. We have them named here. The, son of Ishhar were, the sons of Ishhar were Korah, excuse me. And by the way, Korah is going to come up later. Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the son of Uziel, or the sons of Uziel, were Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, daughter of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The son of Korah, the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These were the Korhite clans. Eleazar, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, after bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. Do you know that it's the same Moses and Aaron? Yes, God says it in there over and over. This is the same Moses and Aaron. And then it goes on to say, He said to them, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. So this was to establish Moses and Aaron, that they were in fact from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, born by Leah through the tribe of Levi, which were to be the priest of the nation of Israel. You guys are now going to be the priests under Jesus. And you are not going to be in the lineage of Levi you are going to be under the priesthood of Jesus, which is under the lineage of, who's the guy's name? Melchizedek. We are after the order of Melchizedek. And you might say, Melchizedek? Who is that guy? If you do a search, it just opens up your mind. It blows my mind, man, like Raul Reese would say. It, it just blows your mind to see what is in there in Scripture that God has revealed to us, and he's telling us our future. You know those four questions that everybody has that boils down into four separate categories? Where did you come from? Your origins, morality, meaning, and destiny. Where are you going to go? God tells us where we are going to go, and he foreshadows it by giving us the tribe of Levi. They were the ones who were the attendants of the temple. We are going to live in the temple in the new Jerusalem that comes down that is not going to need any sun, any stars, the new earth that is going to be there because Jesus is going to be its light. And you guys are going to be like shining ones. You are going to be priests of the Most High. That is our calling. And who are we going to intercede for? Well, during the time that we are here on earth, after the tribulation period and the thousand-year reign of Christ, there are going to be people who repopulate the earth that still have the fallen bodies. We are going to be interceding for them. We are going to be the go-betweens between Jesus, who is going to rule in Jerusalem, and those people who populate the earth. And there's a whole story behind that. When we pick it up again on Wednesdays, we're not doing Wednesdays right now until February. When we pick it back up on Wednesdays, we're going to go through eschatology. And it's going to take a couple of weeks to get through that. 
We've already gone through the book of Revelation. We've gone through the book of Daniel. We finished that up not too long ago. But I want to make sure you guys have down the eschatological information that you need for the future, where we're going and what we're going to do. So that's going to take place in February, probably the second week in February as we go on. Now let's go back to the scripture. Now my, there, there we go. It's freezing up on me here. So verse 1 of chapter 7, then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like a God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Pharaoh feared Moses. Moses shows up. Pharaoh, I'm sure if he didn't know him personally, he was instructed as to who Moses was because he had a place in history in the kingdom of Egypt. And remember, he committed murder, and because of that, he had to flee Egypt. Otherwise, they were going to take his life. And then he became a shepherd out there in the land of Midian over in the area of what we know as Saudi Arabia, And then he came back and he did these miracles, several miracles. Now, the one that we know that he did before, and we'll read about this, that he does before Pharaoh is he takes his staff and he lays his staff down or he has Aaron lay his staff down because Aaron is like the prophet. Moses is like God. And when that happens, Pharaoh will see that, wow, this is not your average trick taking place. Now, we will see that it's repeated by the magicians in Egypt. But when Moses speaks or when Aaron speaks for Moses, things happen. And so it's kind of like God and a prophet speaking for him. Now, in the New Testament, we know that, of course, looking at the Old Testament, it was almost like Aaron is the forerunner of Moses. Who was the forerunner when Jesus showed up for Jesus? Elijah, John the Baptist. And it is thought that when, eschatologically speaking, in the future when Jesus comes back, it is thought that Elijah himself will be here and perform miracles. Because Elijah never died. He was taken up in a chariot to heaven. And it is thought that he's going to come back and he's going to be martyred when he comes back. Some people think that also the other prophet that is going to come, because there's two prophets, one is going to be either Enoch or the other one's going to be Moses. It does say that Moses was buried or God took uh, Moses' body and buried it himself. But we don't know who that's going to be. This idea that these plagues are going to be around and all this is going to happen again and the prophet shows up and the forerunner is going to be there, it's going to take place. So this is a foreshadowing of that future time. Now also, when it comes to Pharaoh, when Moses shows up, Pharaoh has to have this sense like, it's not, this is not going to go well. And he gets angry and he wants to try to stop it. And that is the world. That is Satan. Satan will try to do the same thing. He will try to stop you from doing what you're supposed to do. For instance, uh, when it comes to spirit of Christmas on the main, do you think the enemy would like to have it rain that day? Yes, he would. He would like to have it rain. Do you think the enemy would like to have you have a bad attitude that day? Do you think he'd like you not to get any sleep the night before and then be woken up? And then you go to get a cup of coffee to try to wake up over at Starbucks and they fix it completely wrong. But you don't notice that until you get to Christmas on the main and you can't go back and go get another cup of coffee. And you're just beside yourself. And then those other Christians are there and they're just kind of eating at you. And you're bugging me today. All right. Just keep your distance. And you can see that going on. And we're out of this and you need to run over to the church and get some more of that stuff what do you mean nobody's here well how comes people aren't here helping i mean you can just go off 
It'll be so easy just to jump off into oblivion and I'm dissatisfied. And the world would like you to do that. Satan would like you to do that. Satan is going to be opposing Moses here. And of course it's embodied. He is embodied in Pharaoh. And so when Moses shows up, he is like God to Pharaoh. If you show up to somebody who is an unbeliever, we also, in the small g sense, not in the big G, we are like God to that individual. And you might say, wait, what are you talking about? Because we represent judgment. That's who we are. We deliver the good news, but for those who are perishing, we have a stench about us. Not that we haven't taken a shower, but we represent all the bad that is going to show up at the end of God's timing. In Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. So when we show up to those who are perishing and we give the gospel, they don't want to have anything to do with it because we are the stench of death. We represent judgment. That's what Moses was doing to Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't like it. He got angry. He got more determined. He made the life of the Israelites even more difficult. So that's who you are. And the world will hate you because of this. Whenever you open up your mouth, whenever you do good, the world would have you just do good and keep Jesus to yourself. All right? That's what we want. Just don't mention his name. If you want to get an argument started sometimes in the middle of the world, just mention Jesus. Did you do that at at Thanksgiving? Did you say, we're going to pray in Jesus' name? And some of your family members probably said, all right, here we go again. You know, and they're, okay, let's get on with it. You know, and they would get into the food. And the same thing with Christmas. You know, at Christmas, we bust out the scripture and we read Luke chapter 2 and we go through it. And we're doing that with our family. And once my family, the kids and the grandkids, and they're all grown and they're out on their own and they have great grandkids and great great grandkids and all of that they're going to be some family members eventually should the lord tarry they're not going to want to hear the message they're just going to say fine just get on with it will you because it is the stench of death and we want to make sure that we are not buckling under in the midst of this that we are not those who are going to shrink back from what god has asked us to do okay so we have this example thousands of years ago and god says For us, it's a spiritual application. We have the same thing going on with us. Now, in verse 2, we have the reiteration of the promise. It foretells what is going to happen. You are to say everything. I command you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miracles or miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. I laugh. I chuckle at this. 80 and 83. You might think that how on earth did they do that? You know, I, I roll out of bed. Are you guys into the grunting stage? <laughs> Even getting out of a chair, it's like, oh. You know, you get up, and when you were young, spry, you just, but I'm just getting up. When you're older, 
He said, oh, man, this is such a pain. It's, it's no longer wake up, sunshine. It's raising the dead. Your wife or your husband has to pray over you. And, oh, you get up and your eyes are half-masked and you're going for the coffee or the tea or whatever. And you just kind of got to get this thing rolling. And once you get warmed up, it's okay. 80 and 83, Moses shows up and says, or God shows up to Moses and says, I'm going to use you. And he goes, <laughs> I'm so old, you know. And God decided, this is perfect. He's so old, he can't rely on himself. But as you read through the scripture, Moses' health didn't decline. And we'll see Caleb, too. You know, he was, who knows how old, 30, 40 years old. I, we don't know how old he was. Maybe 20s. But he, after 45 years of being in the wilderness and being with Moses, when Moses first showed up, he was as strong as the day Moses showed up. Now, he was probably, and I forget his age at that time, 70, 80, somewhere in there. But he was strong. He was like any young guy. He, he was still funny. He, he asked Joshua for a plot of land. And he said, uh, you know, it's, it's filled with these guys over here, but I know the Lord's going to give me the guys into my hand. I'm not worried about it. Can you imagine saying that at 70 or 80 years, years old? You have the sword, you're spry, young whippersnapper at 80 years old, and you can wield that sword. And he was just doing all that. Moses was the same way. Kept his strength. Now we had Joshua and Caleb and Moses that made it to the end, but Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land only Joshua and Caleb. So God brought to fruition everything that he said he was going to do. And we'll end up seeing that later. I'm foreshadowing what is going to take place here. But the lesson we can learn from this is Moses being 80 and Aaron being 83. It was just the beginning of their ministry. And you might think, I'm too old or I'm too young. Nonsense. You are not too old. You are not too young. If God can use somebody like Abraham, you know how old Abraham was when he got circumcised? 99 years old. Woohoo! Yeah, let's go, King! Right? Oh, boy, being zealous for the Lord like that at 99 years old? I don't know about that. You, you might think, oh, I'm just fine in front of the TV with my clicker. Just leave me alone. I'll, I'll just do my own thing. And God used him. And also we have Timothy. In 2 Timothy, we know that he was told by Paul, don't let people make fun of you because of your age, even though you're young. God can use the young and he can use the old. If you think you're spent or you think you don't have enough experience, nonsense. You just make yourself available and God will say, perfect. That's just what I want. I will use you just how I have this all planned out. And then Abraham, you know how old he was when he gave birth, when he sired a child? Ishmael, he was 86 years old. Can't you imagine having kids at 86? You laugh. <laughs> it's like, well, right, come on, you little Ishmael, and you're following them around, you know, and you're, let's go play. I get wore out just watching little kids now. You know, I, to think at 86 years old doing that, and Caleb, oh, he was 85 when he asked for the land in Joshua chapter 14, verse 10. And so, you know, God, God can use us no matter where we are. We just have to be open for it. And Moses and Aaron are an example to us for that. Now, verse 8, 
The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Pharaoh wanted a sign. Oh yeah, you're from God? Show me something. Do a miracle. So Aaron took the rod and laid it down. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Verse 10, Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts, which one threw down his staff, or each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord said. Now, you have to understand the context of what is going on here. All we know by the reading of the story is that you have a stick, He throws it down, becomes a snake, probably a cobra. Now you might say, well, how do you know that? Well, if you do a little bit of history, first, the number of gods in Egypt, I've read, is over 3,000. 3,000 gods in Egypt. One of the supreme gods, and he's still not the ultimate supreme god, is Ra, the sun god. Right now, if you watched uh, Stargate, you will be familiar with the Egyptian god Ra. If you are a thirty-second degree Mason in the Masonic Lodge, that's who you worship. Now, I don't think it's compatible with Christianity, but you worship this sun god uh, that is there. So there is this god. It is a woman by the name of Wadjet. Wadjet. And she was the goddess over the lower area of Egypt. The lower area of Egypt is the land that the Israelites settled in. It is the delta, the fertile delta, which is over there. And that's where when they showed up, Joseph instructed them to talk to Pharaoh that they were herders instead of being farmers. And Moses, or excuse me, Pharaoh would have said, well, take this land of Goshen down here. That's the land of Goshen. It is the delta of which this Wadjet is the goddess over. Now, it is depicted, this particular god, as a cobra snake on the head of royalty. Have you ever seen that? That's the god, the the goddess that is up there. And so when Moses showed up and Aaron took this, probably a cobra because that was the Egyptian god and I'm sure the magicians who turned their stakes, their sticks into snakes, they were probably also cobras. And so what does it tell Pharaoh when you have two to one and the one overcomes the two? It means your god is nothing. That's what was being communicated. Now these sorcerers, how did they do this? How did they, can, can anybody here do that? Can anybody here grab a stick? Can we grab this flagpole over here and just lay it down and watch it come into, I don't think so. That's some pretty good magic, right? Now it's either sleight of hand, which I doubt, or it was demonic. And I think it was demonic because they had these secret arts. There's some powerful information that comes from ancient of days, so way back there, stuff that was probably lost in the fire in Alexandria when it burned down, things that would just 
blow our minds again. Things that would be able to be done that we would have no idea how they accomplished them, like building the pyramids and those big stones. How did they move those things around? They didn't have the technology. Even the cranes today would be tested by the size of those stones that would have to be put in place. And so there were some magic arts that were around at that time. And this was saying to Pharaoh when uh, the snake that Aaron had ate the two snakes of the magicians that your God is nothing. Therefore you are nothing because Pharaoh was considered a God and he would give command of what was to take place. This happening just made him more and more angry is what happened at this particular point. Now this is not the first plague, but this is the first miracle with this Pharaoh's heart became hard God is simply establishing what is already taking place in the heart of Pharaoh. He's just saying, I'm going to just let this happen. I'm going to let this take place. And this is for us today too. If your heart is not given to God and you harden your heart against God, it says in the book of Romans that God gave them over to the desires of their heart gave them over to things that they were already planning on doing. When God hardens a heart, he doesn't actually have to go in and do it physically. He can just say, I'm establishing what you're already declaring. The person who says, you are the stench of death and I want nothing to do with your Christianity or your Jesus Christ, you can just have all of that. God at that point, he does not you know, resist man. He doesn't strive with man, man being humankind, forever. There's a point where he just steps back and says, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Now, even the world, when they hear that, they don't like that because the world wants what they want. They don't want what God is going to give them. They want want to write their own book. They want to write their own end, their own scenario. And God says, no, I'm sorry. You have two choices. You can either be with me or you can be with the world, which is going to be in hell. And God describes it in vivid color. You know, I'm probably going to wrap it up here. Uh, At this particular point, there's so much more to be said on this. But the idea, how many times has God spoken to us? Now, we have this document called the Bible here. And the Bible is thousands of years old. And we have it in our hand. And in the Bible, before the Bible was there, God spoke through prophets. God spoke through Noah. God spoke to Adam and Eve. God spoke through Adam and Eve to the generations because we know that there was sacrifice taking place with Cain and Abel. And so he was instructing them and he was telling them about God, the God who had created the universe. They had knowledge of this. But by the time it got to Noah, the knowledge was lost. They refused to retain that knowledge. And Noah comes around and says, look, you guys, God's going to destroy the earth. Are you listening to what's going on? And for 120 years, he preached the word. After that, when his eight and all were saved and the earth was repopulated at that time, God started saying, prophets again and when these prophets showed up we know that there was Abraham but there was someone else called Melchizedek that we already talked about he was a priest he was the prince of the king of Salem who was a forerunner to Christ and go so God was speaking through him as well and there were other people that believed in God around that time then some of the stuff started to be putting down in the word and the word was disseminated through the people specifically through the nation of Israel and people all over the world can read this word they can get into it so God's spoke by people he has even spoken 
through a donkey. Remember that? Balaam's donkey spoke to an animal. He even speaks non-verbally. We look at creation or all creation is out there and you look at that and you go, there is God in the design of this. There's intelligence in that. You can look at creation, you can see him. So God has been speaking for thousands of years and he's been speaking clearly and in the last days he has spoken to us by his son who showed up and not only through his son who is the living word but through the Bible. The Bible was given to us. And so we have all of these testimonies that God has been speaking. Not only has been speaking, but he has been yelling. It is not just, hey, I got a secret to tell you. It has been going worldwide. And God has spoken at various times and in various ways. If we neglect such a great salvation. Now, God, we can relate to God a little bit because we're created in his image. How would you feel if you kept on going to somebody and said, look, you need to understand and you try everything. You do miracles. You part the Red Sea. You do all this stuff and the people go, hey, yeah, yeah, I don't need that. How are you going to feel about that person? A righteous God is going to say, fine, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. But you know, God did all of this because it was the only way. Because I asked the question, why... Why did God do it this way? Why did he take the firstborn? It's because he's setting everything up so that when Jesus Christ finally shows up and giving, being given as the firstborn son of God, we would understand. We would put the pieces of the puzzle together. God would sacrifice his own son to get this message to us. And therefore, being a righteous and just God, he is going to say to the world, fine, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. And that's what he did with Egypt. He said, fine, I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Our God is a gracious God. And he has reached out to us in so many different ways. And if we choose to ignore that, if we choose not to love him back, if we choose not to serve him, then we get what we have sown. If you sow towards righteousness, you will reap righteousness. If you sow toward the flesh, you will reap the flesh and ultimately destruction. That is the message that's coming through here, loud and clear as we read it thousands of years later. My prayer for you guys is that you will grab hold of this, that you will have a thirst for this knowledge. You will say, God, whatever you want me to do, that's it. I'm going to do this because I get what has happened. I get how many thousands of people have lost their lives in order to get me this message we live in such a comfortable state here in our country that sometimes we forget that so may god strengthen you and your pursuit of the knowledge of the word may he embed it in your heart may you be motivated to speak to people and love them like christ has loved us let's pray father we thank you for your word and moses and aaron and everything that they have done so many thousands of years ago lord this is a long time in coming And we know that the end is near. Even your word says so. So help us to be prepared for that. Help us to be about your business. Help us to not be distracted. Help us to be loving others as you have loved us. We thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for the salvation, your mercy towards us, your great love that you have shown. Help us to be bearers of this love and the message of love to the generation. And Lord, I also pray that you would bless our efforts when it comes to the spirit of Christmas on the main. May people come away from there 
saved, new souls into the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.